Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Simulcast, a simulation podcast. Episode one is titled The Future of Simulation in Healthcare. Are we there yet? Welcome, Victoria. Uh, thanks, Jesse. It's uh, fantastic and exciting to be doing this first episode and how much more appropriate than doing something about the future vision of simulation. Sounds great. So what we're going to do briefly is just uh, go into a little bit of the why. Why are we stretching our discretionary time even further to, <laughs> to produce yet another thing? There's a lot of podcasts out there. So do you want to shed a little bit of insight into your reasons why why simulcast? Yeah, absolutely, Jesse. And I think you're right. We're not underestimating this uh, exercise at all. But I think as I do my job, there's a lot of people doing sim now. They're doing it in all kinds of different ways. And certainly I'm lucky enough to talk to some of them and learn things about it. And I think this is just a chance for people to connect uh, through the conversations that we're going to have, the guests we'll have um, on the show, some of the papers we might look at. Uh, and although sims become every day, I think sim is a lot of different things to different people. Is similar for you or something different? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it fits for me. I'm currently working in a clinical role, a clinical and clinical governance role, and I've seeing avenues for simulation um, beyond just education, but also a big gap between the academics of simulation, of healthcare simulation, and the clinician educator trying to employ simulation as one of many of their teaching techniques. So hopefully for me, part of the, part of the vision of the podcast is actually to, to bridge that knowledge translation gap from um, the growing body of evidence around healthcare simulation and from other industries around simulation into the the realm of the clinician educator trying to actually improve their armory of education techniques. Absolutely. I think you're right. Make it accessible. Most of us have shared challenges. How do we start dealing with them? So I think one of my motivations also is it's a bit like if you really want to learn something, uh, set yourself up to teach it in a session. And I think the same thing about this. For me, this is a fabulous way to stay up to date with the latest literature, to think about some of the big issues in simulation because I'm going to be trying to communicate them to others. So my day job, um, I have had many over a short period of time in health, um, encompassed a range of things from um, bedside clinical nurse um, in intensive care to clinical nurse educator to simulation educator in a sim centre um, to a corporate role in uh, backfilling a health service learning and development management program, hospital-wide medical and nursing education in medical emergencies, and um, now back to my home in, in intensive care as a clinical nurse consultant across two intensive care units. So one of the things ever since starting to get involved in some degree of simulation which kind of started as many people have in the ACLS training getting involved in that is the first segue into it I've taken bits of simulation and and really piqued an interest and changed the way that I viewed myself as an educator it's definitely driven every style of education that I do more towards facilitation and um, more recently have been looking at more op opportunities to use simulation as a 
system and process testing and more of, I guess, of a clinical governance and quality assurance application than a pure educational application. Mm. And, and that's interesting. And it sounds like your own career evolution parallels some of what we've seen in simulation, which is what we'll get into. Uh, for myself, so I'm an emergency physician. I've uh, worked mainly in Queensland in my clinical role. And I probably come from a slightly different place because I've been involved in medical education broadly for about the last 20 years. And in simulation specifically since about the time this paper was written in 2004. And, uh, but in a few different roles at the moment, I'm the director of simulation at Bond uh, Medical Program. And so, in fact, I do some work there with the medical students that was really quite different to the work I did in simulation previously. So my roles have ranged from uh, running my own private business, uh, taking our sim man on the road for a few years, and probably doing some of the earliest uh, so-called in situ and mobile simulation, to doing something that we'd see quite familiar and um, team-based scenarios in the emergency department, working a little bit in centre-based simulation. Uh, and as I said more recently now, my work is in teaching medical students and actually using a lot of simulated patients, which is something that was a bit new to me until three or four years ago. And also working in some of the things that you just talked about now at the hospital in looking at process improvement through simulation and looking at simulation as a tool for us to help uh, the tribes across the hospital connect together a little bit more, which is, of course, one of my passions. Excellent. I think that's definitely a, probably a shared vision is that interest in point of care simulation and, um, and the bang for your buck that you can get from doing simulation in the actual clinical work environment. Both of us, I guess, another thing that we share is um, we have the opportunity a lot of the time to teach up and coming clinician educators um, the various, I guess, skills of simulation. Um, and I guess that's a big motivator for me to, to keep on, uh, really up to date and, and aware of the evidence around this, keep practicing and, um, and keep hearing and learning from others that are out there that are doing innovative things in simulation. We often learn a lot secondhand about simulation. So we, we learn from someone that's contextualized their experiences of going and doing a big simulation course and uh, learning from experts so we're often getting a lot of stuff secondhand so I guess that's one of the things about this podcast we're going to try and go straight to the horse's mouth on a lot of these topics um, future topics as we come through and discuss so that leads us into a little bit about what is the format what are we going to be seeing or hearing more accurately with this podcast yeah, well, I think your uh, suggestion there or your comments about teaching others on courses, many of the topics that we've picked over the next six to eight months relate to some of the big topics that people want to talk about. Things like debriefing, things like insight simulation, getting started in research, courses and fellowships, what should I do at different stages of training. Uh, also things like um, papers to review. Is this a landmark piece of simulation literature? How would we critique it to know that it's useful? Uh, so many of these sorts of broad topics that we often break into those courses you're talking about, we'd like to do a little dedicated um, uh, episode on. And then in terms of how we do it, just as you said, we're really interested in talking to people with expertise, uh, but we're also going to use some case studies because we want to sort of put this in context for people so that they can get why it's useful to know some of these things. So case-based approaches, using experts um, and interviewing them, but also obviously um, 
being very interested in our listeners' views on those things. So format-wise, we're going to see a monthly episode. Um, that's going to include a guest on every episode other than this one. Um, we're going to be covering major pertinent topics um, that really we've found, I suppose, through personal experience, as you said, teaching on these courses, uh, areas that people are left hungry and asking for more about. And we are going to frame them around a case and answer sort of approach so to try and provide some context. So that's enough of just the general chit chat and we're going to dive into our first, first case to explore. So you've been asked to develop a five-year strategic plan for simulation services in your hospital. Through your literature review, you recall an article by David Garber, The Future Vision of Simulation in Healthcare. All your dreams have been answered. In 2004, Garber mapped the dimensions of organisational applications of simulation. And you're also thrilled to find his projection of two possible histories viewed from 2025 retrospectively. One, optimistic, simulations integrated into the very fabric of healthcare. And one, pessimistic, lamenting the abject failure of simulation to progress past an ad hoc, expensive education luxury. Now your challenge lies in which history rings most true in 2016 and how do we move forward for the next five years and develop your strategic plan? Yeah, fantastic case. And look, to be honest, this is far more common than we probably admit. And it's interesting, we often don't do a literature review, but if we did, this is the paper that we would come up with, I agree. And, it, and it's interesting because I had literally just started my simulation career in 2004. So to put a bit of context on that, like we do with any paper, we look at the author and we think, well, who's Dave Garber? And some of our listeners might be very familiar with David Garber because he is really one of the grandfathers of healthcare simulation. He works at uh, Stanford University and that was where he was working when he developed some of the first simulators. He's a very interesting fellow. He's an anesthesiologist, as they say in the US, uh, but he also came from a background that was engineering, and also he was a pilot. So he had some of that background that we've read a lot about in terms of the origins of the principles behind healthcare simulation coming from aviation. And I think it's really interesting to sort of take a moment to think about that background of Dave Garber's because the biomedical origin of simulation was shared by some of those other grandfathers, people like Jeff Cooper, Dan Raymer, a lot of them came from that place. And it's interesting, Jesse, because I think that has both been advantage and disadvantage to simulation, because I think it's meant we've had a lot of cross-fertilization that other parts of healthcare didn't have, but it's also meant that we didn't come from a place of health professional education and I think it's probably responsible for some of the disconnect I see in my world between say medical educators and simulation educators and strangely enough there's a bit of a gap there. And I guess the interesting thing with that is it's not necessarily due to their actual vision either, it's the due to, due to the fact that the initial foundings have been echoed through multiple people learning from them to start with and then re repurposing that, teaching others. And you can see how you get this perpetuation of a construct um, that's handed down as gospel through the, through the process. The, uh, those algorithmic examples of the seven principles of CRM, the, the things that clearly have roots in other industries and uh, have been around in simulation and, and I guess healthcare safety culture now for a long time with no, little or no revision.
Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link up to more about Dave Garber in the show notes. Uh, but he still works at Stanford where he's the Professor of Simulation and Immersive Learning. For a long time he was the uh, Editor-in-Chief of Simulation in Healthcare. So he was very active in a lot of the agendas both in professional societies, delivering simulation, faculty development and research. So um, a great fellow to uh, learn from. A true pioneer. Absolutely. So then jumping into the paper, I mean the, the comment I would make first of all is just how much clarity there was in that talking about simulation being a um, technique not a technology making a distinction very early on that the device wasn't the simulation and that there were a lot of other elements to that and so I think he was really forward-thinking because if I look back in 2004 I would say simulation that time was very dominated by a few specialties including emergency medicine it was dominated as you just intimated by crisis resource management and team-based training and it was dominated by mannequin defined realism, mannequin defined fidelity and I think we still had a long way to go looking at the educational constructs and yet this article actually represented I think a much more broad view of simulation than many of us working in it had at that time. Yeah. And I, I guess one of the key things that was quite interesting there was a, a, right back in 2004 some quite advanced thinking around how simulation fits within patient safety culture not just as a as an educational tool um, that seems to have been relatively slow to translate and we'll, we'll i guess touch on that a little more in in um, looking at the the view from view back from the future um, shortly but the other really interesting thing that um, that David Gabber did in this article was was essentially map the dimensions that existed within healthcare simulation at, at the time um, and provide I guess a, a, um, a taxonomy um, for, for healthcare simulation. I think taxonomy is a good word Jesse as you said so for people who want to have a look at the article it's a beautiful little diagram there so take the example of participants in the simulation and there's a schematic where you slide the little slider is it an individual is it a team is it a usual team is it um, a team with mixed professionals and then you'll have another dimension like where are you doing it and already he was having references to inside your simulation versus center-based sim and then the kind of technology that was used was another little slider so I think you're right it was a taxonomy and you could pretty much map your simulation according to where it sat on all of these dimensions and I think that was again the clarity in that thinking was really powerful and it stopped and it made you stop and think there isn't just one way to do this. So I guess uh, taking a slight tangent uh, that hopefully will set up some of the discussion of the optimistic versus pessimistic is given that these the, the clarity of thought was clearly evident from someone admittedly with a biomechanical background is some of the trajectory that simulation has progressed in somewhat been hijacked by the technical industries that profit from simulation? Well, you're probably putting a bit of a conspiracy theory on there, Jesse. I think no doubt industry has had a big impact and that has pluses and minuses. We wouldn't have the uh, technology that we have at our disposal without industry. There's no doubt about that. But you're right, obviously for them, they make money out of people using the gear and so they're going to push the gear and they're going to push a 
I guess, approach to sim that is orientated around the gear. And I guess as educators, we've just got to know how to incorporate that into the needs that we have. But I think you're right, when I look back at that time, people were talking about high fidelity, it meant an expensive mannequin. Yeah. And when low fidelity meant a cheap mannequin. And I think we know now that um, you know, functional task alignment, as you talk about, is far more important. Elements around task fidelity, psychological fidelity and others are at least as important and if not more so than, than the um, actual device. Yeah. And I guess that brings us back to that simple premise of simulation at its truest is a technique and not a technology. There are some brilliant, uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not um, lambasting um, <laughs> the simulation industry um, because yeah, they do drive uh, amazing change. I think there's a misinterpretation of how to best progress simulation into the very fabric of healthcare, um, and it's possibly not on the back of a um, rubber man. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because in this paper, as you said, Dave Garber set out the relationship with patient safety very early on. And I think we've adopted some of those things. I think, however, there's still a premise that if we just train people well, they'll deliver safer care and I think that is a leap we need to move to. And if you actually look at the reference in the paper to the Institute of Medicine report, there's some stuff we haven't really tackled much in SIM. Sure, we've looked at safety, to some extent we've looked at effectiveness and is the care we're delivering of good quality. But a lot of these things like, is our care patient-centered? Is it timely? Do we have access to it? I'd suggest that SIM has a role in all of those things that we have underexplored. Yeah, absolutely. And having seen some of the work that you've been doing with um, in the Gold Coast um, University Health System with the stroke sims and and actually mounting a perspective from the simulated patient uh, of viewing the way that the healthcare system's unfolding around them when they present, that is clearly an avenue for future exploration. Yeah, patient-centered care. Well, it's something we talk about a lot, but I think remains a fairly mm. abstract concept. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's think about it. Uh, which vision do you reckon uh, we're up for, Jesse? Are we optimistic or pessimistic? I think it depends which day of, the, of your working life this captures you on, I guess. It depends whether you've had uh, one of those incredibly frustrating conversations where people just don't seem to get it, or whether you've been surrounded by inspired, like-minded people that are that are seeing the same vision of you as, as you do and seeing what a difference um, these sort of techniques can, can make. Um, like everything, probably somewhere in the middle, but it might, be, it might be just interesting to unpack a little bit of a summary of each of those visions from, um, from Gabba's original paper so we're just not talk, talking in the third degree about it. Okay, so to cut to the chase on the paper, this is what Dave Garber outlined as the two possible histories. I'm going to start with the optimistic one, Jesse, and you can tell me how you think you're going. But in this fantasy world in 2025, as, and I quote, the driving forces coalesce to achieve the vision of simulation embedded in the fabric of care. And in this, Garber outlines that educators got on board, professional societies got on board, the public were a big driver, um, people like malpractice organisations were big drivers, 
And in the face of all those people working together, we have this utopian world where simulation is a part of care, it's a part of training across the spectrum, it's a good way for us to test and diagnose problems in the health system, and it's an embedded part of the patient safety cycle. It also is a way that we address and uh, consider big picture issues in patient care and in terms of patient safety and adverse events. So what do you think? Anywhere close? Well, in terms of how close we are to that utopian vision, I guess it's like any um, view of a perfect world. There's a discrepancy in resources between different health services, different organisations, different areas. So one of the key gaps, I suppose, is just a connectedness with, with sustainable funding models to achieve that and still a, a pervasive lack of recognition of the need for human resources to embed simulation into service delivery, make it part of service delivery. One of the things that really stands out that's still a little jarring in the, most of the context of people that I talk to that are trying to get simulation going and get buy-in is the rub with, oh, we're too busy. My personal view is if we're at a point where simulation is embedded into quality improvement and patient safety practice, a simulated patient is no different to a real patient in a bed. And if we've got the capacity to function as a unit with a patient in every bed, then we should have the capacity to function with a simulated patient. Um, obviously there's some caveats around that and that's where having strict go-no-go no go criteria for running simulations in situ is important but I don't think we're quite at the point, we'll know we're at that point when we view a simulated patient the same as a real patient. Mm, absolutely and at the same time I've got some sympathy for the administrator's view. I think we have to help them to see where they can save money and I think to be honest the simulation community hasn't made that case yet and if we're saying we want more resources for this we should be able to demonstrate where we are saving money instead of putting up I think fairly hypothetical situations where we think it'll save money but it's hard to show. So if then we think about the pessimistic view, and again, I'm going to sort of outline and paraphrase what Dave Garber said here, but uh, in it he said, the initial excitement turned into a tempest in a teapot. And in fact, simulation never became embedded because although it worked for some things, it didn't work for others, research never got funded, professional societies failed to act. And an interesting one here, where different tribes wanted to own simulation and they could never really get it together. So there were turf battles between people that meant there was insufficient collaboration to make simulation useful. So you said you were a pragmatist before, I think, uh, Jesse. Do you, is this really so far removed from where we are? We've got some of this happening. I think, uh, like, like we said before, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle between these. The... The, the turf wars and the ownership, uh, I guess that's very b born out of a um, technology-based simulation model because it's, it is important when you've made significant cost um, uh, investment in, te in technology for simulation, there's going to be some protection and ownership over space is, is something that fosters turf wars in hospitals and um, assets is something that foster turf wars in health services. So while they're seen as the underpinnings of simulation, there will be turf wars. I think the liberation from that comes in the education of 
educators as simulation as a technique as a facilitated learning technique and I think that's what we're seeing actually moving forward is the is the propagation of knowledge um, and and the technique of simulation that will probably push us closer to that. Mm. Yeah, I think there's two drivers that push us more towards the positive side. And one of those is that I'm seeing increasingly everyday educators using sim. And I think that is where it has to come with a groundswell. And the second is, and it was made reference to it in Garber's work, um, indemnity organisations, malpractice organisations, they are seeing some benefits from this. And they are starting to be funding bodies, just like Crico in the Harvard Host Hospitals um, organisation. And I think we're starting to see if they're convinced, then that's definitely a driver. So I think if we were to sort of wrap this up, Jesse, we'd be thinking, well, if we could offer up a couple of things each where we think really might help to drive us towards the more optimistic view of simulation in 2025, would you have a couple you could offer us? Well, one actually comes is something that we're we're working with our safety and quality our service improvement units to, at the hospitals that I work at to embed, and that's um, moving us further forward towards seeing simulation or simulated patient outcomes as very similar learning opportunities to our normal clinical adverse events. And I've got to credit um, David Grant and the Bristol Simulation um, community for that vision. That was something that was a bit of a, a real mind opener for me is well why not we have a system called prime in queensland health as i'm sure you're familiar and there's absolutely no reason we can't prime the latent hazards that we uncover in system or just in situ simulation exercises um, as an adverse event clearly obviously labeled as a simulated adverse event um, but then that forces an action from them to close those off as there is with every um every clinical incident response mm, yeah so that's one easy step that we're definitely looking at uh, trying to implement at the moment mm. and there hasn't been too much obstruction to that mm. that moves simulation into a clinical governance discussion sitting in meeting minutes um, simulated adverse events being viewed by our service improvement officers the people that are generally one step removed from the clinical coalface I think that's a really good point and I think your general point is that structurally simulation should be at least as embedded in patient safety, clinical governance as it is in education and I think that's an issue for how we set up our hospital systems and um, I couldn't agree more. I think that's about embedding it and asking simulation people to embed it. Um, there's two that I would offer that I think could help push us towards this more positive view. The first is, and I think we're already seeing this, but to get more finessed about the research agenda in simulation. I think back in 2004, and I was guilty of it as well, we all wanted to design trials that showed that simulation worked. And we didn't really know what we meant by simulation, and we certainly didn't know what we meant by worked. And because we often came from healthcare backgrounds, we were busy trying to devise randomised control trials to prove it. And Dave Garber had a bit to say about that for about the 10 years as well. But I think now we've got to a place where there's now much more fine-grained uh, ideas about what should be the research agendas in healthcare simulation. There was a summit at IMSH in 2011. There's going to be another one next year at IMSH. Uh, there's papers written. And I think we're starting to understand that we should be looking at 
what works in simulation, for whom, in what context, in what time, and we need far more sensitive ways of approaching those things so that we can prove what we need to, but it'll be more complex than just does it work. The second thing that I'd suggest, uh, again, is that we need to get really serious about developing the people that deliver simulation. And I guess speaking from my own point of view, I think this really needs to start early on. And we've got some students now who are going to be doing seven-week simulation electives in their final year at medical school. So they will start with really basic things like how to help deliver sim, how to do some moulage, how to write a scenario. And then those same people can help us as junior doctors and then when they're registrars or doctors in training of one sort or another they can do a fellowship in simulation. And so I think we're going to do a whole episode on thinking about courses and fellowships but I think to develop that vertically integrated model where healthcare clinicians and educators develop their simulation expertise in a longitudinal way, I think means that they're thinking about this right from the get-go. Absolutely. Well, I think that means we're going to have plenty to talk about, uh, Jesse, and I guess we'll have to hope we're still doing the podcast in 2025 and we can do a recap on this. I hope so. <laughs> well, you better finally give us the details about this podcast. So first of all, thanks for listening to the first episode. Hope you enjoyed it. To join the conversation, the best way is probably to follow us on Twitter at sim underscore podcast. Head over to the website, simulationpodcast.com. There you'll find the show notes for each episode, including references to any of the articles that we refer to, an ever-growing foam sim resource section, a forthcoming journal club, and discussion threads where you can help shape the future vision of simulation in healthcare. So don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, head on over and give us a rating and a review as well because that makes our search visibility much higher for others to find the podcast. Also, keep an eye out between our scheduled monthly episodes. From time to time, we're going to release our Pause and Discuss, which are short snippet episodes focusing on a particular topic of interest, opportunistic on-the-spot interviews with great simulation educators, and Vox Pop-style updates from conferences and courses. So it's bye for now, and we look forward to chatting with you next month. Mm -hmm.